It's not like a fairy going through the cartoon. Jeez. <laughs> I was, I'm going to talk about the rapture and the voice of an archangel. So, in um, about 1985, a guy wrote a book called 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming in 1988. He was a very smart man. You say, well, like, how smart? Like, rocket scientist smart? Yeah, he was a rocket scientist from NASA. And he had mathematically figured out that Jesus was coming on the Feast of Trumpets, 1988, which is September 12th, I think, that year. And there was a new Christian who'd bought the book. You say, well, who'd buy the book? Because the Bible says nobody knows the day of the hour, right? Well, the, the book sold three and a half to four million copies. And there was this young Christian who wrote a review of the book. He said, I was 21 and I bought the book. And I don't know if you remember when you were a young Christian, you were just a sponge for information, right? And anything that sounded, you know, awesome. Like I remember I got saved in 1975. And in 1977, there was an alignment of planets. I don't know if any of you ever remember that. And I thought, alignment of planets, 1977. That's two sevens. That's God's favorite number. And people were guessing, you know, what it meant. Nothing happened, you know. So anyway, this young Christian bought this book. And, in fact, his pastor started to teach from it. And they even got the author to come to the church. So he's a brand-new Christian. He's absorbing this. And just like most of us when we're kids, we just believe everything we're told. He was believing everything. And, in fact, he, um, he had a girlfriend that he was planning to get married in three or four years. Um, but since the rapture was coming so soon, and he somewhere read in the scripture that if you're joined on heaven, you'll, you're joined on earth, you'll be joined in heaven, right? And so he wanted to get married to her before the rapture, right? So he, he rushed the marriage, got married to her, and they were so excited about September 12th, and it came, and you, as you could probably guess, it went. And he said that the church almost fell apart. And then he um, saw the turmoil in the church, and he left the church. And then he left Christ. And his end of his testimony was, he says, I'm not blaming this all on the book, but I'm now an atheist. And you see the, the danger of believing something that you think's in the Bible, but it's actually not. And the guy was so smart. You know, we've always probably been there. We get our opinions from people that we respect. You know, they have two degrees, and they've been trained, and so you just take it for face value. And a lot of times we get our information that's not even from the Bible. We just think it is. You know, if you ask most people, how many wise men are there? Your most common answer will be three. Why? Because that's what you saw in the church play a hundred times. And if you actually read the Bible, there was three gifts. There didn't say how many wise men there were. Or how about this one? Elijah, if you ask people, how did Elijah go to heaven? A lot of people will say he went in a chariot. You know the song, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot? And I, believe it or not, I sang that char song in elementary school, back in the day when you could talk about Christianity. I didn't even know what it was. Cherry, they, they sang it, chariot. I thought, some kind of cherry? thing? Didn't make any sense to me. So did Elijah go to heaven in a chariot based on the song? No, he went to heaven in a whirlwind. There's a chariot in the story. The Bible says that he had told Elijah, if you see me when I'm taken away, you get a double portion. So guess what? He was on him like green on grass. And what happened? God had to send a chariot to separate him. Why? Because if they're so close in the whirlwind, it took them both to heaven. And so the chariot separated, yes, but he went to heaven by a whirlwind. So a lot of times we get our information uh, from a book we read, an author we respect, and we just assume it's right and in the Bible, and then when we actually look into it, it's not even in the Bible. So let, let's go to the first slide. So this is a rhetorical question, and it could have three possible answers. 
Now, if, if when they came to Jesus and said, what will be the signs of your coming? If he said, no signs, just be ready, then he could come at any time, right? Okay, we know that's not true, but without knowing the Bible, that would be one possibility. The second one be, if he gave his signs and they are all fulfilled, then he could come, right? And the third answer would be, no, if he gave his signs, but not all of them had come to pass, then he couldn't come until they did, because he wasn't just kidding us. So let's go to the next slide. There's some rules, I think, in Bible interpretation that will save us a lot of trouble. This is a really key verse in Deuteronomy. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, uh, our God, but those who are things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So there's, this, there's two different kinds of things out there. There's hidden things and revealed things. Now, where this author made the mistake was he took a hidden thing. Remember what Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, not the angels, not even the sun. So how in the world could somebody say, well, I know. Is he like going to be the fourth member of the, the Godhead? So if he just know, if the, the young man that fell away from the Lord, if he knew one verse, that would be Mark 13, 32. But of the day and the hour, no man knows, not even the angels in heaven, but the Son. Not, not, nor the Son, only the Father. Only the Father knows the secrets. And if God has a secret, there's no, nobody that's going to be able to figure it out. So then there's other things. So some people say, they look at the, the, the crazy prophecy people and they go, just throw it all out, just forget it. And so then they, they aren't paying attention at all, they aren't watching, they aren't looking for the signs. And so they, they throw kind of the baby out with the bathwater, but the Bible commends us and encourages us to know the time and the season. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they could interpret the weather, but they couldn't interpret the time and the season. Remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they missed their time of visitation. God expects you to know some stuff, the revealed things. He also expects you to respect the secrets. And this is where we get into trouble. Trying to figure out the things that the Bible doesn't tell us. You know, there's a portion in, in Revelation where there's seven thunders. And John was about to write it down. And then a voice told him, don't write it down. That would be one of the things that are secret. And yet I'm sure as the world, there's been people that say, the Lord told me what the seven thunders are. How would you ever prove it? It's not in the Bible. Daniel was uh, kind of depressed because he had all this revelation, but he didn't understand it. And the, the angel told him, seal it up until the time of the end. So there's certain things that are secret, but are secret for a while. When Paul talks about the rapture, he says, I tell you a mystery. So in other words, this hasn't been known. It has been sealed for a while, but now it's revealed. And so those are the things. And then at the end of Revelation, uh, the, the angel tells John, do not seal this book. It's open now. So the, you have all these variations, secret things, revealed things, things we can't know, things that we should know and are expected to know. And so... These, these are kind of the rules of uh, how to interpret. You have to stay in your lane. So, and sometimes there seems to be confusion and contradiction. Um, if we go to the next slide. How about uh, the, this first verse? It says in First Thessalonians 5, verse 2, starting at 2. For you know yourselves perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as, as a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So his first statement, he comes as a thief in the night. And so people say, oh, it's thief in the night, so don't try to pay attention because it's, it's always going to be a surprise to you. But then just two verses later, Paul talking to the same people says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that day should overtake you as a thief. So it's possible that he comes as a thief to some people, and they're surprised, and he comes to other people, and they're not surprised, which kind of seems a contradiction. But there's a great illustration uh, written by a man who studied the, 
the tabernacle, I think his name was Edersheim, and he describes there was a person in the Jewish culture called the, the thief in the night. He was the priest or the captain of the guard in charge of watching the, the, the temple during the night. So they'd have, according to the Old Testament, they, they surrounded with guards north, east, south, and west and kept guard all night. They had to keep watch. And the thief in the night was the, the captain of the guard when he'd occasionally get up in the middle of the night and do a lap around the temple and see if the priests were awake or asleep. So if they were awake, he was the thief in the night, but what? They knew. I mean, it's dark and the guy comes with a torch. It's hardly like sneaking up on you, right? They recognize it. He came as a thief, but they were awake. And I'm sure in those days there was a lot of procedures and respect, and they're probably like saluting good watchmen for staying awake. I'm going to go around. So then when he would come to a, a priest or a Levite that was supposed to be guarding and he was asleep, you know what he would do? He would take his torch and light the guy's clothes on fire. That would wake you up, wouldn't it? So here we have a verse that may make a little more sense. Uh, Revelation 16, 5. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches, stays awake, right? And keeps his garments. Why would it say keeps his garments? Because in the context of Jewish culture, if you are asleep, your garments are going to be burned up. At least he walked naked and you see his shame. So here we have an illustration. So if your garments are on fire and you wake up, what are you going to do? You're probably going to it was kind of like a robe in those days. You'd take the robe off, throw it off, and stamp on it. And there you'd be standing there in your underwear. And in the Jewish culture, that would be considered naked. You know, this is not... the. You, can you imagine a high priest going to an American beach these days? What would he say when he comes back? The women were naked. Literally? Well, no, but basically, right? So here we have an illustration that if you don't stay watch, that he's going to catch you asleep. And there's only one church in Revelation 3.3. This is to the Sardis church. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. So this is in the context of a dead church. Remember, therefore, how you have what you've received and heard, and hold fast and reprint. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come to you as a thief, and you will not know the hour that I come upon you. So to the dead church, you think there might be a few churches in America that would consider dead churches? And what's going to happen to those? The, the coming of Christ is going to be a total surprise. They're going to be the equivalent to the priest that's sleeping, and they're going to be ashamed. There's a great reward for those who stay awake. There's a verse in, in, in uh, Luke 12 that says, Keep your waist girded, your lamps burning it says, be like men who wait or were servants waiting for their master, that when he returns from the wedding and knocks on the door, they open immediately. They don't have to be woken up. They're already ready for his coming. So in uh, Mark, the last verse there, it's just pretty simple. What I say to you, I say unto all, watch. So... If we go to the next slide, there are three sources where we get information about the second coming. They're from the Old Testament prophets, from Jesus himself, and many times you'll find that what Jesus is talking about is he's, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet, and then the apostles. So we have all these confirmations. It's not like a one-off thing. And there's so many signs, in fact, it's easier to break them up into categories and to uh, study them deeper. There are signs that the Bible predicts would be in the world when Jesus is about to return. There are signs in the church. There are signs in Israel. And even final, the final signs are signs in the heavens. So there's a lot of different categories. So um, if you go to the next slide, <coughs> first of all, in case, you know, there's probably been a time in the early church when they 
they just assumed Jesus was coming, but they didn't have the scripture yet to know for sure. They just, well, I'm assuming Jesus is coming. Well, to make sure, let's go, let's take it right from Jesus' mouth. John 14 says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you will be also. So we have not much details about it, but we have the clearest confirming word, I will come again. And it actually follows the the pattern of a Jewish wedding where there would be a betrothal, which was as strong as uh, marriage in their culture, where we have an engagement. It's kind of like, but you can break your engagement easy. But a betrothal, it takes a divorce to break break it. Remember Joseph was going to divorce Mary, and they hadn't even come together yet. And so it's a very strong commitment. And then the, the man would go away. i go prepare a place for you. He'd go away, usually about a year, build on to the father's house, another home for him, him and his wife. And then about a year later would come back, but the son wouldn't be at to pick the time. His father is the only one that knew the time of the wedding. And when he'd see his son is ready, then he'd say, you can go get your bride. So it kind of follows that, that pattern. So the, there's a lot of criticism by people saying, well, the rapture, is, is that word is not in the Bible, and therefore it can't be true. The word in, in the Greek is harpazo, you know, and, and people have the argument, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible, and yet it's a biblical principle, right? In fact, if you want to get technical, you could open your Bible to any page, just throw it open, pick a word, that word is not in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, right? So there's actually technically nothing in your English Bible that is exactly in the original text. It's all a translation. And so rapture is a translation from actually a Latin word, which means to be caught up. So to illustrate this, remember when um, Philip was baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Bible says when he came up out of the water, that Philip was caught away and brought to a different city miles away. You know what the word there is? The same word for rapture. He was caught up. I mean, that, that's like crazy, huh? You're in one place one moment, and next moment you're in some other city miles away. Well, that's, that describes what the rapture is. And there's, there's a lot of verses there, and I left them there so you could reference them. Then. But I wanted to go down to the one that, this, was, this study started about June, and I came across, I was reading through Thessalonians, and sometimes I go through the Bible fast. I've read through the Bible once in a month, and other times I'll read the same book over and over again. It just depends what mood I'm in, I guess. But I was reading this, and I've probably read it 30, 40 times. It's the, the bottom portion here. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, so it's talking about this thing called the rapture, we ask you not to be shoot, uh, soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. So the backstory is Paul had visited the Thessalonians, told them about the second coming and all the Christian doctrine. He had left. Somebody apparently sent a letter Remember it says here, or word or letter as if from us. They forged it and, and signed Paul's name, I guess. And the letter apparently gave the impression that they had missed the second coming. And Paul is now going to refute that and try to uh, assure them that they hadn't, hadn't missed the second coming. So you can imagine you're a brand new Christian waiting for Christ to come. And then you get a letter that says, oh, you missed it. I mean, that's pretty depressing, right? So what does Paul say to assure them? He says, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day we're gathered together with Christ. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And, second condition, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. So he sits in the temple since as God in the temple, as God showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember 
when I was still with you, I told you these things? So his assurance that it hadn't taken place were two things. There hadn't been the falling away yet, and the man of sin had not been revealed. And until you see that, it, it won't happen. The, the second coming won't happen. And, I, and I've always been taught that Jesus could come at any time. And here's Paul saying, no, he can't come. And, and obviously, if Jesus said, these things will happen as signs before I come, and the signs haven't taken place, then he can't really come. It's just, in my mind, pretty simple logic. So let's burn through real quickly the different categories. You can go to the next slide of the signs that Jesus said. So these are the signs that will be in the, in the world, conditions in the world. Jesus, always his first warning was, don't be deceived. There will be deception. He said there will be wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes. Paul said there would be perilous times. Luke said, hearts will be failing for fear with perplexity. There would be a desperation. People won't know what to do. And these signs I would put under the category of birth pains. That Jesus said these signs are like birth pains. In other words, after Christ came and there was an earthquake, and maybe people did it, but they shouldn't have run to the top of a hill. The earthquake, Jesus said that would be a sign. But he also said that when, at the end, all these signs take place, plus he said some signs were like birth pains, which means, I don't have to explain this to the women, that would be great news if I told you, now when you have your first birth pain, that's the worst one, and then it's easier after that. Hardly true, right? So what's the pattern? When you have your first one, you're probably going to have bigger ones, and you're going to have them more frequently. So when there's an earthquake, guess what? I predict there's going to be another one that's bigger. When there's a famine, I predict there's going to be more famines and more frequency. So these are the signs that don't have, a, you can't put a date on it and say that's the last one. In fact, the last earthquake says all the mountains will go away and the sea, the islands disappear. And you can probably confirm that hasn't happened yet, especially living in Idaho. You just look, look toward the mountains. So, those are the signs in the world. If you go to the next slide, the signs in the church. Jesus warned there'd be false messiahs, people actually claiming to be Christ, which is kind of crazy in my mind. You know, if they said, I, I'm uh, representing Christ or something, but they're actually people will say, I am the Christ. False prophets and teachers, offense, betrayal, hatred, persecution, even to the point of martyrdom. Loss of sound doctrine, a falling away, love grows cold, and one of the few positive things of the end days, the gospel will go to all nations, and the Bible says, and then the end shall come, when it mentions that. Now, Israel is one of the smallest nations. You go to the next slide, but it has, obviously, the epicenter of all this stuff that's coming down. Um, and these are some of the signs that are not like birth pains, because most of them have such a big event that you'll be able to put a day or an hour when they happen. Well, you know, when the Antichrist shows up, and the Bible says he comes with a seven-year covenant, you'll be, I'm sure there'll be a national news that day. The covenant was signed, right? It happened on this day. There's an abomination of desolation, huge event. We don't know the details of it, but it's a huge event. And Jesus quoted Daniel, Daniel's 70th week which is a seven-year period. There has to be, at the end of time, a seven-year period when God is wrapping everything up. There'll be a time of Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah talks about. And most people believe that that is the, half, the last half of the seven years after the abomination. Jesus said, flee, because this is be the, such trouble in the world that unless God cut the time short, no flesh will be saved. You ever think the the magnitude of that statement? Unless the time is cut short, nobody would survive. Malachi says, I'll send Elijah before the coming of the Lord. A lot of people believe that of the two witnesses, one will definitely be Elijah. Only time will tell. The temple will have to be rebuilt. The end, end of the world, the Bible says, all nations will be gathered together against Jerusalem. So if you go to the UN, guess which country has the most controversy and things against it? Israel. 
You think, well, is there anything more controversial in Israel? Yeah, a city. Which city is that? Jerusalem. See how we're getting smaller? Is there anything more controversial than Jerusalem? Isn't that impossible? No, the Temple Mount. A few acres on the Temple Mount. You know, the Jews can walk freely through most of the city, including the Arab part, not a problem. But the Jews show up on the Temple Mount. I've been there on Easter when some Jews went on the Temple Mount and as we were leaving, we were on top of the Mount of Olives at the, the hotel there, the International Hotel. And as the cars were leaving, the Arabs were stoning. If, if they had, you could tell the Arabs have blue license plate, the Jews have yellow. And so if it was a yellow license plate, they would get stoned. And if it was a blue, you got passed. And we were just about to leave because we had service that morning up there. And cars started coming back, all the windows bashed out and people bleeding, ever seen, you know, if you ever seen, you know, I like have 50 stitches in my head because I kept getting my head, but it bleeds like crazy. I remember one time I was trying to keep up with my dad around the corner and they just put new gravel on the road. Full speed, man. And I just, I like eight stitches in my head, but it was just like bleeding crazy because wounds in the head. I remember one time I was picking up a ball by a, uh, in a, at school in a, these uh, inside protected area and they had these big heavy metal doors, right? And I was reaching down to get the ball and the girl came running out full speed and hit the door against my head, knocked me down and she said, are you all right? I go, and I was just total blood. She says, I don't think so. <laughs> so they came back all bloodied. So the Temple Mount, this is the epicenter. And this is where the abomination of desolation is going to take place. This is where all nations are going to be gathered together against it. And this is where the signs actually probably have many of the, the uh, dates that we'll have. It won't be uh, like incremental. It's not like the once a week the Antichrist is going to the temple and declare himself God. There's going to be one event in a time. So the last, if we can... Go to the next slide. The last wave, there's uh, the signs in the heaven. These are probably the last, obviously incredibly significant. Um, just very simply, the sun's going to go dark. The moon, one prophet said the moon would turn to blood. Another prophet said it would go dark. You remember in 2014 and 15, we had a series of blood, what they call blood moons? So that side has already been, that could be God saying, okay, the time is not yet yet, but if you're paying attention, you'd say that's a sign that has to happen, and that sign has happened. Has the sun gone dark? I think we would notice, right? <laughs> that would be something. Can you imagine waking up at 10 o'clock, and it's still dark, you know, and sometimes my power goes out, and the, all the clocks go off, you know. You'd probably think, oh, it's, it's not not really uh, 10 o'clock, my clock's reset. And then you look at the other clocks that aren't run on an electrician, you go, well, no, it's 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, and it's dark? So I think we'll notice when that sign takes place. And of course, the moon being only reflective, if you turn off the sun, what happens to the moon? It can't reflect light that doesn't exist on it, right? So these are obvious signs, and they're, they're in, as you'll see, they're, Jesus quoted it in Matthew, Joel quoted it in his book, and then Isaiah mentioned it too. And this is the point where in, in Luke's version, so this, this, what they call the Olivet Disclosure is in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And Luke says, when these things happen, context, the, the signs in the heavens, now you can look up because your redemption draws nigh. When all these things come to pass, Jesus says, then you know the end is near. Not when there's a first earthquake or one little uh, a famine over here, but when things all come together, then um, you know the time is near. So a few years ago, I was studying, and I came across what I thought was pretty a strange thing. If you can go to the next slide. I noticed that everything that Jesus warned his disciples about in Matthew 24 showed up exactly in the seals in Revelation. And I thought, you know, I was taught at the time, 
we're not going to be around here for any of that. That most people's translation is, you know, in chapter 4 where the voice is, John, come up here, that people say, well, that's the rapture right there. And so the church is now gone. And they also quote, you know, the church is not mentioned after uh, Revelation chapter 4. And it's true. The, the word church doesn't show up. But then I thought, um, I looked at my, I have a computer program. I scanned my, the New Testament. The church doesn't show up, and I figured 217 of the 260 chapters. So what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything in my mind. So the church doesn't show up. And then I started thinking, I read every introduction to the epistles, Galatians, to the church at Galatia, right? But then there's over half the epistles are not addressed to the church, to the saints, to the believers, to those scattered abroad. And so to isolate, the only way God can address the church is to the church is an error. Because most of the time he addresses it as the saints. And in the rest of the book of Revelation, guess what? The saints are mentioned. The believers are mentioned. The overcomers are mentioned. So I think it's, it's not a good argument. So you look real quick. He said, let no man deceive you. And who shows up? A white horse. Now this, there's a white horse later in the book, and it's super obvious to be Jesus because it describes he's faithful and true. He has written on as the word of God, and he's called the king of kings and lord of lords. You don't need to be a Bible expert to figure out that's talking about Jesus. But here we have a white horse guy, and he comes with a bow, but no arrows. Um, it was Chuck Missler that pointed it out. So we think, when you say bow, what do you think? Bow and arrow, right? And he said, actually, the first, in, the first time bow is mentioned in the, the Bible is the sign of the covenant in Noah's day. So he says, you could translate, the guy in the white horse comes not with a bow and arrow kit, and he forgot the arrows, but he's coming with a covenant. And one of the ways to identify the Antichrist is he comes with a seven-year covenant. So I think it's obvious that this guy is a deceiver, and you can see by what happens after he shows up, basically. So Jesus said in, the, in, in verse 6 of chapter 24, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And what's the next seal? A red horse. It's always symbolic of blood and war. And we have famines... And then we have the third seal. It's a black horse, and they said they're weighing food, food shortages. In fact, it's interpreted that you'd have a day's wages for a loaf of bread. You know, we think we have high food prices, right? Sheesh. So the fourth is pestilence, and then there's this pale horse. You know, and it's funny. This is not only the way it's revealed in the Bible, but it's also the way it unfolds in history. You know, what happens usually, a war is started by a guy on a white horse trying to be a victory guy, and, you know, like Hitler. You know, he comes to save the day. He's going to save Germany. Comes in peace, white horse. You know, and then they finally figured out when Hitler said, I, I just want peace, that he actually meant, I want a piece of France, and I want a piece of Russia, and I want a piece. And so what, what usually happens, the white horse guy shows up, save the day, and what's he do? He starts a war. Then what? Every time there's a war, what? There's a famine. It's not like illogical, you know? You shift all your energy to building weapons and send your best people overseas to fight, and there's a food shortage, food rationing. And then what happens? If you ask a nutritionist, what are some of the basic important things about staying healthy? On the top three, these will be top two. You have to have good nutrition, and the stress level you live under. I know people that have incredible, their discipline in eating is awesome, but they're in constant stress, and they get sick, have heart attacks, right? And I know people have no stress and eat like junk food all the time, and they're sick. So in World War I, we had a war which brought a famine, high stress times, and what followed this, a few months after the war ended? Spanish flu. After years of stress, years of bad nutrition, you're vulnerable. You know, there's some people in the COVID environment, they don't even know they're sick. My boss's kids all got it. 
they did, there was, they all, like the worst one was, had a headache for one night. That was it. Strong immunity, healthy kids, no stress. And what? They kick it off like crazy. After four years or five years of war, then what happens? The Spanish flu hits. So it's, it's a logical sequence. So then what did Jesus say? There would be persecution. People would hate you and kill you. And what's the next seal? The martyrs. Was the last thing Jesus said be the final thing? Earthquake, sun, moon, and star darken. And what's the sixth seal? Great earthquake, the sun, and moon darken. Exactly. They fit like this. So, you know, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, everybody has their chart, you know, will Jesus come before the trouble, in the middle of the trouble, the end of trouble, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrap. And I'm still studying it, but I would ask the pre-tribbers, why would Jesus warn us about all this stuff if we weren't going through it? Why would he warn us exactly every item in Matthew 24 shows up in Revelation? Why would he do that? And my question to the post-tribbers that believe that they'll go through the entire tribulation. Why didn't Jesus even mention one of the trumpet or the bold judgments? He said up front, I'm going to tell you things before they happen so that you're not offended when they do. So he tells us about this that shows up there, but he doesn't mention, you know, you can imagine uh, him ending, um, there be, you're going to be killed and there's earthquakes and famines and they go, the disciples are going, man, that's pretty discouraging. You know, why didn't Jesus? That ain't nothing yet. Wait till the asteroid hits the ocean and turns it to blood and then hits the land and contaminates your drinking water and it's wormwood and poison. And wait for the locust to come from the pit of hell and bite you for five months. You'd think he might mention it if that was going to happen to us. So the Bible teaches that... Um, that we are exempt from the wrath of God. And there's, there's several verses that talk about that. And an interesting point is, when does the wrath of God announced in the book of Revelation for the first time? After the sixth seal. That's when wrath of God is announced. So if we can go to the next slide. So these, these are the verses about that we're exempt from the wrath of God. In America, we have a, a, a court term called double jeopardy. You can't be tried twice for the same crime, right? So it would be unjust. If Jesus really absorbed the wrath of God for us, died for our sin, it would be unjust for God to turn around and then punish us for it. Because either it worked when Jesus did it for us or it didn't. And it did. So we are not appointed unto wrath we will be saved from the wrath through him, um, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And it's in Revelation 16, right after the, the sixth seal, that the, uh, this is declared. The people cry out, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For great is his day, the great day of his wrath is come, and who can stand? So if we can go to the next slide. So if, if I were to tell you I want you to teach John 16, you'd have a, and if to stay on, and only in John 16, you'd have a real problem. You know, so there's two things about the Bible. The Bible is totally inspired by God. And the second point I'd like to make is the chapter breaks are not inspired by God. So if you were going to try to teach John it enters up, it says, These things have I said to you to keep you from falling away. Another translation uses the word offended, and the third translation stumbled. Falling away, offended, stumbled. So it's a huge issue, right? And it says, These things I've said to you that you don't do it. Wouldn't you want to know what those things are? It would be impossible to teach without it. So the, the Bible chapters aren't inspired by God. And so if you go back to John 15, it talks about I'm the vine, true vine, you're the branches, so on. 
And then the last 10 verses, it shifts totally subject where actually John 16 should start, in my opinion. And Jesus, what is he warning about that could cause people to stumble? He's talking about persecution. He's warning them up front. He's saying, if they persecute the master, do you, what do you think will happen to the servant? If the world hates me, do you think it might want to hate you? And he's warning them about, and it's, it's kind of hard to understand because he said they hated him without cause. I think one of the most frustrating things about being persecuted is there, there's no real reason for them to do it, you know? You think of the, the people in Nigeria right now, they're being killed by Muslims who, the second part of the verse, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Those jihadists kill Christians and think they're getting brownie points with God. And what are they doing wrong? You think the governments of the world would say, okay, the Christians are really kind of one-minded about this Jesus guy, and they're all fanatics. And, of course, the definition of fanatic is somebody that loves Jesus more than you do. And so, but they, they run the food banks. They dig wells in Africa. They support the poor. Just let them go. They don't even charge us for it. You think that would be the attitude, right? They're just a bunch of do-gooders. Let them do it. Remember, Peter is brought before the court, and he, I love what he said, it's, you know, Pete, he's going to say something, right? He's brought before the court after he healed the cripple, and he says, excuse me, what's the charge? Is it a good deed done to a helpless man? He converted five people, 5,000 people at this miracle and preaching. So you can imagine the, the, the Pharisees just going, how can you charge a person for healing you know, that's called um, being hated without cause. So my point today, and I guess I should close it up, that is not to get you to believe in some, get your Bible chart right, and have I ever, you ever seen some of these charts? 50 events, and they're all figured out, and it's like, whoa. I don't think you can come down to a different, there's verses that indicate, obviously, or people wouldn't have different beliefs, um, there's verses that indicate that we get to go before the trouble, middle of the trouble, after the trouble. And I, I'm not here to tell you should believe one thing. I'm just trying to get you to be aware of being alert and watchful and be careful that you're not believing something because, you know, a lot of people get their, believe it or not, their end-time theology from um, the Left Behind series. You know, there's 70 million books read, and there are probably twice that many people that read it. And it's a fiction book, right? You can't get your theology from a fiction book. We have to believe, I'll put it this way. When I lived in Seattle, one day I was in Fred Meyer, and I thought, you know, this is an earthquake zone. I'm going to buy some water jugs, and I ordered some long-term food, and I had like five gallons for everybody in the house, and food. And it didn't cost me anything, basically. It was so easy. I was already shopping. I just bought it, right? It was easy to be prepared before the trouble came. The earthquake never came. I brought the water jugs to Idaho. But how much trouble would it have been if I waited till after the earthquake to try to get prepared? Probably impossible. Probably the store is either sold out or they're not even functioning because there's no electricity. And if somebody else had water, they go, I need this for my family. And if they had extra, you better believe they were going to charge, right? So it would be either impossible to prepare after the fact or very, very costly. And so what I want to admonish us today is about watching and being prepared and studying the scripture, go back through the scripture and see, am I believing what I've been told by my favorite preacher, my favorite books, or have I been told, am I believing what's in the Bible? Remember how I opened the story. The young believer was told that he was, the, the rapture was going to come at a certain time, and it ruined his faith when it didn't. You know, not every Chinese person, not every American missionary, but 
American missionaries, some of them were telling the Chinese, don't worry about the commies. The rapture is going to come before they show up. Is that the case? No. Did the rapture, has the rapture saved the people in Nigeria that are being killed or the people in the Middle East right now are suffering? No. So there's two things, I'll close, that can cause people to fall away. One, persecution. And the Western church has mostly been free of that. We don't know. Are we ready to stand? Two is bad theology. So the Chinese were told the rapture will save you, but it didn't happen. What if most Americans thinking, well, we're going to be out of here before it gets really bad. But what if it doesn't happen? What if we're here when some of these things throw? And I believe the tribulation is so bad that it could get super bad before the tribulation, and you probably think you're in the tribulation. Are you ready for that? Are you going to be stumbling over your belief? And this, this is the thing that we all face. We all face at some point in our life something that God does or allows in our life, and we don't like it. We didn't expect it. And it's usually a big one. When I first got saved, um, uh, my, the girlfriend I was dating, she dumped me for her, another guy. And um, I was in like Flynn with her parents, too, because I got saved, and they were, they were so thrilled that she was finally dating a Christian. And anyway, she dumped me. Two months later, my dad came down with cancer, 49 years old. Two months later, he died. And it was the hardest time of my life. I had to quit going to college and get a job to support. I was the oldest of five kids still at home. And the devil rode me like a mule. And he had some really good arguments. You know. And we all go through these things to test our faith. And... My sister had a child that's 18 months old, died on Christmas Day. Those kind of things, they either make you strong or they destroy you. And if she, would, if she was preached the, the prosperity gospel, she would have not made it. If she would have told God's good and only going to treat you nice and you'll be rich and fat and famous your whole life, she would have not made it. She would have had, but she had faith in God. She made it through and now she's stronger than ever. And people that look at her that went through that say, I couldn't have gone through that. And she says, I know you couldn't. You didn't have the grace to go through it. God gave me the grace to go through it. So watch, read, and ask yourself, what do I believe? And is your answer a quote from your favorite preacher or a movie or a book? Or is your answer biblical? Because if you aren't standing on the Bible, there's going to come a time in your life when that thing is going to be disappointing. The thing is, you could have 50 strong beliefs in Jesus. You know what happens? If there's one that gets smashed because you didn't believe right, it's going to open the door for you to doubt all the others. What do you think the Chinese Christians said to the a Christian evangelist, Americans that came and said, the rapture is going to come? before the trouble, before the communists. They probably went and says, well, if you're wrong about that, were you also wrong about who Jesus is and salvation and going to heaven and eternal life? It brings doubt over everything. So we have to guard ourselves. We have to be sure that what we're believing is in the Bible and that we can stand. So like I said, it's better to be prepared for going through trouble and not have to go through it, you know. If I wouldn't mind flying to the air today and having you say, Brad, I think you're wrong. We do get out of the trouble. And I go, I've never been so happy to be wrong in all my life. But what if it's not? And this is what the early disciples went through. Remember? Jesus told them once about st standing on 12 thrones in ruling over all Israel. They hooked onto that like green on grass. He talked about the cross multiple times and they just kind of oblivious to it. They thought 
when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem that he was going to set up the kingdom. They're going to rule. This is going to be awesome. And you can imagine, the, the, I call it the crescendo miracle where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And the Bible says many people went to be on Jesus, believed in Jesus because of that, and to the point where the Pharisees thought they were going to have to kill Lazarus to stop the movement. And so what are they talking about when Jesus is about to be died? They're going up for the last time to Jerusalem. Who's going to be greatest? <laughs> Who's going to get the throne on the right and the left? In fact, we know the story where James and John sent their mother to ask for the throne on the right and the left. <laughs> you know, I imagine the disciples were pretty upset. They said, oh, God, that ain't fair to send Mama. And then he said, I also have a second complaint. Why didn't I think of that first? He said, my mama. So the, the Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, what does it look like that's going to happen? The whole world's gone after him. Heroes welcome. They're probably thinking, see, I knew the good stuff was going to happen. We're going to sit on thrones probably in a few days. But what happened? Th four days later, crucified. It seems like, and I'll close really, I will close with this. It seems like we're always out of sync. They were looking for the lion of the tribe of Judah, and who'd they get? The lamb. Today, we're acting like the lamb's coming back. But who's coming back? The lion and the judge. And what's he going to say to you if you're watching? Good and well done, faithful servant. And what's he going to do if you're not? He's going to light your pants on fire. <laughs> and you'll be naked. All right, symbolically. But you don't want to be caught uh, standing there in your underwear, right? You want to be standing there in the robe of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us signs. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would all be Bereans and that we would study to see if these things be so. That, Lord, that we would check to see if we have a blind spot. We're believing things. Uh, that aren't in the Bible, but things we've been told. Lord, you said that we are to uh, test everything and hold fast to what's good. Help us to do that very thing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. short here I know that I'm probably giving new meaning to preaching the everlasting gospel <laughs> I had 39 pages of notes by the way and you got 12 so <laughs> you could think I could have kept you here all day but I'll just say this what I say unto you I say unto all watch have a good week